you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, verse number 10. What a joy, my first week to work four tens at Baton Rouge Industries and have a whole day here to uh, do church work and sermon prep on Friday. Pray that that holds. <laughs> it might be teetering after a couple of weeks. I don't know how that's going to work out, but I pray that that will hold for me and for you. It's for your good as well. That's why we're back in Colossians today. And we have a text before us that is packed full of theology and doctrine. And so you know what that means. You will have to engage today in some serious expository listening. What that means is, for you first-time visitors or if you've never heard me say that before, you're going to have to engage your intellect in this sermon the narratives are big and the narratives are stories. And I love preaching narrative. But when we get into theology and doctrine, we live in such a soundbite culture that we want everything in two seconds and explain it all. But expository listening requires you to engage your mind in the thickness of this amazing text. And let's read our text first. And you're going to see what I mean when we read it together. Colossians chapter 2 Verses 10 to 15, the, the Word of God says this, And in Him, that's Christ, you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him, you were also circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. So you see what I mean here. 
Now, as we've seen in our study so far, Paul has been making these tremendous statements in Colossians concerning the the person of Christ and his ability to save. And remember, he is engaged in a in a counter attack against all these heresies that are that are right at the the doorstep of the church at Colossae. But he engages these heretics, as I've told you before, in a positive way, not by naming all the heresies and going through all what they've been saying, but simply by presenting the truth of Jesus Christ. Look back in verses 8 and 9 just to to recollect our thoughts of where we've been in this text so far. In verses 8 and 9 he said, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Verse 9, For in Him all the fullness of deity, Godhood, dwells in bodily form. And the idea from Paul here is, you do not need any human philosophy. Because he says there, look in verse 10, And in Him, that's Christ, you have been made complete. And it's interesting as you go through the Gospels and you study about the physical healings of Jesus, over and over and over again you find when Jesus healed someone, He made them whole. That word, Whole is used over and over and over again when it, when it talks about the healing of Jesus. It means entirely well. Whole. No missing parts. Jesus, when he healed people physically, made people totally and completely healthy. And what that has to do with our text here in Colossians 2 is, In the same exact way, Jesus heals people spiritually. Again, look, in verse 10, Paul says, In Him you have been made complete. You could put the word whole in there. You've been made whole. When when Jesus saves you, it is a whole salvation. You become spiritually, entirely, completely well. That's what Paul means when he says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. When God acts in saving grace, it is an act that is whole. It is complete. Look there in Ezekiel eleven nineteen. God says, and I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. 
meaning a spiritually beating alive heart. And so, what Paul is driving at here is that when you come to Christ in saving faith, you were made spiritually whole. And just like a healthy man no longer needs medicine, you Colossians, you Christians in 2023, do not need human philosophy. You do not need Colossians, Jewish legalism, or any other kind of strange pagan mysticism that was right outside of the door of that church. Why? Because you were made whole in Christ. Now let's look again at verse 10. And in him you have been made complete. And look at this. And he is the head over all rule and authority. So, all human religion and all human philosophy is based on the traditions of men, just as verse 8 just told us. And so human religion and philosophy have nothing, absolutely nothing to add to what is already completed. When Jesus died on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. And when he said it, he meant it not only in terms of his own work being finished, but also in terms of securing the fullness of salvation by his substitutionary work on the cross. And notice verse 10 again says next, He is the head over all rule and authority. I mean, that statement comes down in metric tonnage upon us, theologically speaking. As I said earlier, you have to understand that even though God is allowing all manner of things to happen during this time period of human history that we live in, things that we've never thought even in our little short lifetimes that we'd ever see happening in our nation, Jesus right now, this verse is saying, is the head over all rule and authority. You have to understand that. He is the creator of the universe and He is the ruler of the universe. And He rules over all other beings. All spiritual beings. All created authorities. All princes, kings, prime ministers, presidents, senators. All created rulers. All angels, good and fallen. All human beings. Because he is King Jesus. He is the ultimate king. There is no king that compares to King Jesus in all of human history. And remember, Paul is wanting to make this clear. 
Because again, the heretics were there at Colossae teaching that Jesus was some kind of lesser being, this emanation come from God that you had to follow that was kind of like an angel. So Paul is wanting to make it clear. He wants everybody to understand no other beings have anything at all to add to the work of Jesus Christ. Listen. Good angels can't make you complete. They can't even help you be complete. And fallen angels can't harm you once you are complete. Christ alone makes you complete. So Paul is delivering a hammer fist here to the heresy of human philosophy and religion, which tries to deny that that Christ has the power to give a complete salvation. Jesus is the completer, if you will. He makes anything that he touches whole. Now, let's park here for a minute on this idea of completeness. What does it mean? Well, Paul is going to answer that in three ways in these verses today. Are you with me? Three kinds of completeness. One, complete salvation. Two, complete forgiveness. And I love the last one, number three, complete victory. So let's dig in, shall we? Complete salvation, number one. Look next at verses 11 and 12. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, there's a whole lot there in that economy of words, right? And we get circumcision all in there. And as Gentiles, we start saying, wait, what is going on here? So as always, I've spent all week trying to condense this and break this down to where we all get it. And first you have to remember, Again, that Paul is battling this crazy mixture in this church at Colossae of pagan beliefs, Jewish legalism, and along with that, they're trying to bring the idea into the church that along with faith, you have to be circumcised. If you remember, the Judaizers tried to do that in the church at Galatia. Saying basically, hey man, it's great that you have faith in Christ, that's good. But guess what? In order to actually be saved, you're also going to have to go through circumcision. Surgical salvation. And Paul wants to come along and say in verse 11, look there. And in him, you were also circumcised. How so? How could the Colossian Gentiles be circumcised? Well, look next in verse 11 and you'll find out. With a circumcision made without hands. No surgery here. We're not talking about a physical operation. We're talking about a spiritual operation here. 
And you know the history of Israel, how every little Hebrew boy was circumcised physically on the eighth day after he was born. And that was the sign of his belonging to the covenant and the nation of Israel. And for the Jews, for most of them, that was it. You were good to go after that. You're a covenant child of Abraham. You're in the kingdom. Now, I want you to know there were some spiritual Jews, a remnant, down through history that believed that circumcision was only an outward mark of a man who was inwardly committed to God. And they were right about that. And God in His Word has always made that clear. There are many references in the Old Testament to uncircumcised hearts. But in the majority report, it was that physical circumcision that the Jews were counting on But here in verse 11, Paul says, And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. You, believer, you have had a special circumcision. This is spiritual surgery. Only Jesus can perform this surgery. Now the NIV which I have admittedly referred to as the never-inspired version, and that's a joke. It, it does get things, it does get things right every once in a while. I don't recommend it as a version for you to read, but every once in a while it gets things right. And it gets at this idea pretty well. Listen what it says. In him, you were also circumcised in the putting off of your old sinful nature not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. That's really good. It's the putting off of your old, unregenerate, sinful nature. It's cut off. It's cut away. When you became a Christian, your old nature was taken away and you became a what? A new creature in Christ Jesus. A man can perform a physical circumcision, but only Christ can circumcise a man's heart and cut away that old sinful nature. And that's why Paul is saying, don't listen to these heretics. You don't need any kind of right, R-I-T-E, of physical circumcision because you have received from Christ a spiritual surgery of which that old rite was just a picture. It was just a symbol. Are you with me? Look again in verse 11. Let's keep going. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. But wait a minute, Brother Philip. Wait a minute. If we've had our old sinful nature put away in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, and and we've got this new nature, in the words of R.C. Sproul, how comes it is that we still sin? Well, come to Sunday school right now. Right now we're in Romans 7. 
And Steve Lawson explains all this far better than I do. And he started explaining it this morning in Sunday school. Next week's really going to be fantastic. Come back 945. But I'm going to come at it and add a little more to what Steve was saying this morning. This was not planned, by the way. And then we read out of Romans 7 in the public reading of Scripture. So it seems like the Lord's wanting us to get something here today from Romans 7. Romans 7 is all over the place here on us today. Romans 7.15, look at it. Now I'm just piggybacking on Dr. Lawson from Sunday school. And it's Johnny Mac, so you know, they're tied at the hip. Here's Paul, mature Christian. I agree with Steve on that. Mature Christian at this point. Think about yourself right here in this verse, Christian. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do. But I am doing the very thing that I hate. Christian. Can you identify? Hmm? Verse 16. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. Verse 17. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Now he's not placing any kind of blame here. What he's getting at is this. Understand this clearly. It is not my new nature doing this. It's the old flesh that my new nature is encased in. You with me? Look next, verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. Where, Paul? That is in my flesh. Not in my new nature, but in my flesh. You see how he makes a clear distinction right there? Keep going. For the willing is present in me. That's my new nature. But the doing of the good is not. That's my flesh. Verse 19. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. That's the old nature. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. That's my new nature. So simply put, my new nature loves God and always wants to do what is right and pleasing in the sight of God 24-7. But verse 23, but I see a different law in the members of my body. And what is it doing? Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. And that is a war that goes on every day in the life of a Christian till we die. That's what Dr. Lawson made clear this morning in Sunday school. Think of it this way. 
the new nature that is in us, wrought through the power of the Holy Spirit in the miracle of regeneration when you came to faith in Jesus Christ has been purified, but the body that it lives in is in a mess. And that's why when we get to heaven, we don't get a new inside. We get a new outside. We don't need a new inside. Because we got a new nature. You understand? Paul goes on, verse 24. Wretched man that I am. He's feeling the weight of this war. Who will set me free from the body of this death? And here comes the answer, Christian. And I like to read the answer this way in verse 25. Some people I just like to read it like a machine gun. No, don't read it that way. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the answer for every Christian. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. My new nature is Godward. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin, my flesh serves the law of sin. Do you see the distinction? And we're going to go more into depth with that with Dr. Lawson next week. 945, be there or be square. That is how we are all now ordained to live as Christians in this world. Just like that. New creation life. New creatures. New nature. But surrounding it is the flesh which wars against the new nature. And guess what God is doing? God is using that war within us to grow us to mold us, to shape us, to conform us, Romans 8, 29, to the image of Christ for His glory and to prepare us for His presence in heaven. That's what it's all about, folks. So when you came to saving faith in Christ, that was the end of your old nature. Yes, you still struggle with sin, as I explained, but you don't need anybody or anything to get you more saved. There's some people teach about the second blessing. No such a thing. You can't get more saved. That's like saying I was married and now I'm more married. You're either married or you're not. You don't need anything to be added to the new nature that you've been given except to strive daily to bring your practical behavior into harmony with your new nature. That's your obedience every day. Okay? And again, Steve stole my thunder this morning in Sunday school. Paul teaches that the primary way of how we do this is in Galatians 5.16, so I'll just quote it. But I say walk by the Spirit, and you'll not carry out the desire of the flesh. That's how you deal with this, this war. You walk by the Spirit. You come to church. You worship with God's people. You study His Word. You live and grow. 
You desire to be obedient. You carry it out. All the rest. Now go back to our text in verse 11. It's taught us you have new life. Christ has circumcised your heart, taken away the old nature. Colossians, you don't need that outward sign of circumcision. And then he goes a step further. Look at verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. He's saying, after all, you've had your own right. Guess what it's called? Baptism. And no, Paul is not teaching baptismal regeneration right here. Well, of course he wouldn't do that. Why would he get rid of one ceremony just to bring in another ceremony? Right? He would never say the change from spiritual death to spiritual life is done by water. Just like it's not done with circumcision. That wouldn't even make any sense. What he is doing is giving you a picture of the union that the believer has with Christ. Water baptism is a magnificent picture of the, of the believer being placed into Christ. You became a Christian. It is as if you were buried, you died in your old, unregenerate, sinful nature, and you rose again in newness of life. Look again, verse 12, through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Meaning just like God raised Jesus from the dead in the same way He raised you from the dead when you believed savingly in Christ, your old life died and was buried and you rose in newness of life. And notice in the verse, it's all in the working of God through faith alone. And here's a news flash. You're either spiritually dead or you're spiritually alive. That's the only kind of two human beings there are in the whole world. There's no middle ground. Every single human being on planet Earth is either one or the other. Now, there's a second element of being complete in Christ in this text, and it is complete forgiveness. What better doctrine can there be for us than that doctrine right there? First element emphasized completeness of salvation apart from ritual. This emphasis emphasizes the completeness of forgiveness apart from any work. Look at verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh... He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us most of our transgressions. Is that what it says? No. It says all. All of our transgressions. Keep going. Verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Like Rogerdale said Wednesday night, I should just read this text five times and this I'll go home. We're done. I can't do justice to this text. 
I'm going to try. Notice again, verse 13, the he and the him contrasted with the you. And you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now that sounds really bad, right? But the very next phrase says, he made you alive with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. You were in bad shape. I was in really bad shape. But he made you alive together with him. Folks, that's your union with Christ. Being dead in your transgressions, dead in your sins means spiritually dead. I hate to tell you, but you were born into this world physically alive, spiritually dead. DOA, the moment you came into the world. For an illustration, John MacArthur says, when you go to a funeral, everybody moves around but the one in the casket. Everyone files out of the funeral home on their own, but him. Because he cannot respond to anything. And that's what spiritual death is. You are on your own, in your own power and strength, unable to respond to God. You are completely locked into the world, the flesh, and the devil. You are alive physically, but you are a spiritual corpse, the real walking dead. But God. Oh, God was on the move. What's the one thing a dead man needs the most? Life. What did he do? He made you alive together with him. Who's that? Christ having forgiven us all our transgressions. Incredible. Who deserves that? Nobody. It's all sovereign grace. You hear people say, I found the Lord. No, sir. No, ma'am. You didn't find the Lord. He found you. We have no more power to overcome our spiritual deadness than a physically dead man has to come out of that coffin. And what Paul is trying to say is that this is all so fantastic, Colossians. Please evacuate from your mind needing to add circumcision or anything else to the perfect finished work of Christ alone. Don't let them in the door. Being given a new heart and a new nature and having a complete new relationship with God and eternal life. Oh, folks, look, it can be summed up in two little words and that Paul, he just wants to make sure, real sure that you get this in just these verses alone. And as we put them on the screen, I want you to look for this little phrase in each verse and look for them as they go through the screen. Two little words. Look in verse 10. Do you see it there? In him. You see it? Look in verse 11. In Him. Look in verse 12. With Him. Look at verse 13. With Him. How do you get all this? By being what? In Christ. That's what He means. That's what He's stressing. You surrender your life 
to Christ and the astounding benefit, verse 13 again, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Psalm 32, verse 1. How blessed, you know what that word means? Happy. How happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Christian, if you came in here today depressed about something, you ought to not be now. Not after I just reminded you of this fact that all your sins are forgiven. And Paul's not done. Verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, let me give you a picture here from history and from the Greek. This is referring to a handwritten note of a debtor acknowledging his indebtedness. This is like an IOU. I, Philip Gay, owe you $5,000. I really don't, but I don't have it, but this is an example. I owe you $5,000 signed Philip Gay. That is a certificate of debt. This right here that Paul is speaking of is a signed confession of debt, spiritually speaking, of your sin and my sin that's piled up into space a debt to God that we owe that we've got to pay notice the verse it's against us consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us it would destroy us eternally. It would condemn us because we could never pay it. It's a self-confessed recognition of those debts, but by God's grace, when you are willing to go up there and sign it and say it's all true, God, I will sign my name on that line of my debt piled up to space. Those are my debts. The moment that you do that in saving faith, verse 14 says the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way. Literally, he, he wiped it off like erasing a blackboard. And that's the forgiveness of God. But not without a price. Because somebody had to pay. God is holy. God is just. And all sin must be paid for. And verse 14 makes it very clear. He has taken it out of the way. How has he done it? Having nailed it to the cross so that when you walked up, and you sign your confession on that line. That's when God took that confession that you signed and he nailed it to the cross and Christ paid the penalty and it was wiped clean. 
In those days, the list of crimes of a crucified criminal was nailed to the cross with that criminal to declare the violations that he was being punished for, just as they did with Jesus, as you well know. Well, here, all of the sins of all the believers for all of time were put to Christ's account and nailed to His cross. And He paid the penalty in their place, satisfying God's holy justice against crimes, requiring punishment in full, and He paid it in full. You know what the Bible says? He remembers those sins no more. So, Complete salvation, complete forgiveness. One more for today, and then we're close. Complete victory. Verse 15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through them. Now, this is a fascinating subject that I am still in process of plumbing the depths of. The rulers and authorities that he is referring to here are fallen angels. You need to understand that there was a complete paradigm shift in the demonic realm at the event of the death of Christ on the cross. Now, we've got a couple of new folks in here. Roger Dale loves when I give my devil disclaimer. Okay? When we talk about the devil... We talk about demons. We want to be biblical. We want to be balanced. We don't want to be like some of those kooky, charismaniacs, devil here, devil there, devil, devil everywhere. Okay? The devil ain't behind everything, and we blame everything on the devil. None of that. We want to to deal with this intelligently and biblically. Look what it says about it. He disarmed them made a public display of them, and triumphed over them. For one thing, it was at the cross where Jesus bruised the head of the serpent that was prophesied in Genesis 3.15. But listen to Hebrews 2.14 and 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. To put it simply, in his death, Jesus was able to conquer death in his resurrection when he rose from the grave. And by conquering death in that way, he rendered Satan powerless against all people who are saved. All Christians. Because for the believer, death is swallowed up in victory. John Piper writes also about this, verse 15. Listen to what he says. It's good. When Christ died for our sins, Satan was disarmed and defeated. The one eternally destructive weapon that he had was stripped from his hand, namely his accusation before God that we are guilty and should perish with him. When Christ died, that accusation was nullified. 
All those who entrust themselves to Christ will never perish. Satan cannot separate them from the love of God in Christ. I thought that was a good explanation. And in addition to this, hold on to your hats. We find a most interesting reality in 1 Peter 3.19 and verse 20, speaking of Christ. It says, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now John MacArthur in his study Bible writes this. Between Christ's death and resurrection, His living spirit went to the demon spirits bound in the abyss and proclaimed that in spite of his death, he had triumphed over them. The spirits in prison refers to fallen angels who were permanently bound because of heinous wickedness. In fact, Jude refers to this, I believe, in verse 6 of his epistle where he writes this, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, this is some juicy theological stuff right here. And there are all kind of different theories about what this is talking about. Okay? Some say that these angels that Jude says, who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, that Peter refers to as once disobedient, are the fallen angels of Genesis 6, who found the daughters of men beautiful and took wives from them, which produced the Nephilim. Now, we don't have time to get into all that. Okay? Very interesting. Very entertaining viewpoints. I've been listening a lot about this from the different angles. I'll I'll say I'm much more now on the literal side of this than the symbolic line of Seth interpretation. If you want to talk with me about church after church about that, I love talking about this subject. But let's get to the bigger point by way of application of our text for today. It does seem very clear from Scripture. That when Jesus' body went to the grave, his spirit went into the place where this particular group of demons were bound and he proclaimed victory over them. That's very clear. He proclaimed triumph. Look again at verse 15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them having triumphed over them. MacArthur says, as Christ was suspended and suffering there on the cross, no doubt the demons were having a carnival. Oh, they thought (coughs) and imagined that he was their victim up there, but how wrong they were. Because he mastered over them even in his death. And for Paul, take it back to what exactly who he's writing to, these Colossians, The cross and the resurrection are the answer to the heresy deceiving the minds of the people in Colossae. There's no point in paying tribute to principalities and powers that have been defeated by Jesus in total victory. So don't listen to them. Now listen to him. As wild as it seems to us, 
And it does seem wild. I agree with you. There really is a supernatural unseen realm that you can't see with your eyes that's made up of good angels that are sent to us as ministering spirits, as the Bible says, and fallen angels. And some of those fallen angels are bound and some of them are roaming around wreaking havoc on the earth. But all of those are headed one day to the lake of fire, including Satan himself. Okay? That's real. If we believe the Bible, if we believe the authority of Scripture, the Scripture makes that clear. What a day it's going to be when we get to heaven and we find out what was really going on all around us that we couldn't see. We're going to be like, wow! But for man in general, especially today, who has this underlying fear of being crushed sooner or later because death is coming for all of us by an intimidating universe and cosmos that he really cannot explain. Really. And he knows it. There's only one message of hope that comes firing and shining through it all. Jesus Christ and Him crucified, dead, and buried, and rose again is the Lord and the King of the universe. That's the only message of hope there is in all of this. And all of the forces of the universe, good angels, fallen angels, human beings, all creation are subject to Him as Creator and Lord and Conqueror. And as believers, because of Christ, we fear nothing. We fear nothing. The death of Christ was a transformation. The death of Christ was a pardon. The death of Christ was a triumph. And all of that makes for a complete salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this tremendous text. I feel like such a babbler trying to preach these amazing words. But you got to have a preacher. How will they hear if they don't have a preacher? So, Lord, I pray you take these things and just bind them and seal them till our hearts and minds. I pray that your people have been edified today, that we've all grown from what we've learned. And I pray if there's any here who have not bowed the knee to Christ in saving faith, that you would draw them with your spirit and save their soul. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.